Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Tis the season to be jolly, but don't get too distracted from important priorities, like end-of-year financial planning. For some orientation, I spoke with Tiago Glieger, a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland, a firm that specializes in federal employees. There's so much that people can be doing between now and the end of the year. And one of the big ones that we see around this time of the year is getting ready for capital gain distributions. If you own a mutual fund investment inside an account that is non-retirement, so this is like an individual account or a joint account, then this is something you're going to want to be watching for because every year right around this time of the year, Mutual fund companies are going to pass on those capital gain distributions to you as the investor. This happens because other investors throughout the year are selling their funds, they're redeeming shares, so the capital gains get realized throughout the year for that mutual fund. And here's the thing that people miss is even if you don't sell that mutual fund, you're still going to owe the taxes on that money. And so that happened big time last year where people were losing money because the markets were down and they still owe taxes. So that's a big thing that's going to come up to them next time they have to pay taxes in the coming year. That would not include funds in your TSP. Correct. That's the good thing about tax-deferred accounts, like a retirement account, is you don't have to worry about those distributions, because the only time you're taxed then is if money comes out of the account. So unless you took money out of the TSP, no taxes to worry about. On the other hand, if you have a Roth, what happens? Yeah, and that's the good thing about the Roth, too, is the Roth, there's no taxes. So that's one of the big benefits, is you get to touch that money, pull it out of the account without having to worry about taxes at all. It's, you know, the higher your tax bracket goes, the more that impacts a federal pension, if you have that, Social Security taxes, capital gains, all kinds of things get impacted by that. And what about required minimum distributions, either of your own TSP, if you are retired, and you haven't done that in the year? I mean, is there a timing issue there? And what about an inherited IRA also? Some people, as they get along and still working, may have those in their bank, too. That's right. Yeah. The RMDs is everybody's least favorite topic at the end of the year because they're thinking about this huge tax bill that's going to come down. And so minimum amount of money has to come out of your retirement account if it's pre-tax because it's money that's got to grow with no taxes yet. So you owe the taxes on the money. And you have to think about where is this money going to come from? Are you going to use this as a time to rebalance your portfolio because you have to make some sales to generate the cash? Do you want to just use cash you already have on hand? Maybe your other investments are down and you don't want to sell them at a loss. You may also want to be considering taking more than your minimum amount. And this is the case if you're thinking down the line, you might be in a higher tax bracket than you are today, simply because your minimum distribution will be bigger or because tax rates might be going up here in a couple of years if the tax laws don't change. So maybe you take a bigger chunk out here at the end of the year this year while you're still in a lower bracket. That's something that's been really popular for Feds. Many Feds, when they do retire, are not ready to stop working. And if you're at a certain level coming out of the federal government, you've got lots of offers from industry and a lot of feds take them. You know, oh, when'd you go there? Okay. <laughs> and so you have this full-time income coming in, but you might actually be at the RMD age, which I guess is up to 71 and a half now. And so how do you figure out all of that when you're working and you're retired, so to speak, for purposes of your annuity and your TSP withdrawals. Yeah, the challenge in working in retirement is if you have the annuity already, that's fully taxable. If you are of RMD age, that money is fully taxable. So you keep stacking more and more money on top. So thinking about where your tax rates might be in the future, if we have the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act sunsetting here in 2026, which is how the current law is set, 
set to sunset unless they make changes. Tax rates are going to bump. And so you might be thinking, okay, if that's going to happen and I plan to continue working through those years, I'm immediately going to pay 3%, 4% more taxes then than I am right now. So maybe I take bigger distributions out of my retirement accounts while I'm still in a lower bracket. And what about gifts that can offset taxes? This is the time of year when people think about that too. So maybe, you know, instead of that car, <laughs> you could get a lesser car and give charitable contributions to offset taxes. Yeah, that's a really big one, Tom, because if you are of a certain age, and the key age here is 70 and a half, you can do something called a qualified charitable distribution, or known as a QCD. Now, it works nicely with an RMD, which, by the way, used to be 70 and a half. As you said, it has gone up, went up to 72, then 73 to 75, depends on when you were born. But the key here is that it allows somebody that's 70 and a half or older to take a distribution from their retirement account, send it directly to the charity, and you don't owe taxes on that money because it went to a charitable organization. The charity doesn't owe money, but you also get to satisfy your RMD. And you think of the other way of making a charitable donation. If you're going to cut a check and just write it to a charity, you've paid taxes on that money already. And if you're itemizing, you probably had no tax benefit of just writing that check. So if you can do it out of a retirement account, do a QCD, that can be extremely beneficial because everybody gets to save on taxes and you get to do some good in the world and meet your RMD. And what about fixed income annuities? These are available from your alma mater in, in some way, so they get your money now and then they give you this percentage on that money, almost like a CD type of arrangement, and you can get them from financial institutions. Good idea, and is year-end a good time to enter into one of those? I think the end of the year is always a good time to be thinking about your strategy for next year. One thing that we encourage feds as they think about these kinds of annuities is whether they want to trade the liquidity of their capital for another type of pension. Because an annuity is sort of like a pension. We have Social Security that they've paid into. We have their first pension that they've paid into. And some people really like that guaranteed stream of income, that guaranteed 3 or 4%, whatever the annuity is offering. But that requires them exchanging a chunk of their liquid assets for that annuity. But if that can help give you peace of mind, then that's something that should be contextualized within their retirement plan and can be very helpful. Right. And they come in different sizes. So you can kind of decide how much tolerance you have for setting that part of your TSP aside. That's where you would take it from. And there's probably tax implications there, too. Right. Annuities have their own kinds of taxations. If you are moving it from a tax preferred vehicle to another tax preferred vehicle, you do get to maintain that tax preference. But you do have to be careful because if you take the money out, it's considered a distribution and then you put it back in, right, there can be taxes on that transition. So, And also on the topic of IRAs, you can make children's contributions at this point for how? How does that work? Yeah, that's a really popular one, Tom, because if you have a child that took a summer job, maybe they were at the pool or whatever it is, as much as they earn, they can contribute that to an IRA account for themselves as well. Now, kids, most of the time, they're going to want to keep that money. They're going to use it for pizza or for school or something like that, hanging out with their friends. So parents and grandparents can make that contribution up to $6,500 as long as they earn that for 2023. And some of our clients will do these annual IRA contributions for their kids, for their grandkids, even into their 20s. And that's a really nice way to help 
the kids begin to think about saving and investing for themselves. We almost always suggest a Roth for them because they're in a low tax bracket. They're not earning a lot of money. If you do it right, by the time they're 30, they could be sitting on potentially six figures of tax-free money that can just put them so much further in life by having that there. Sure, yeah. And don't buy a car with it either. Right, exactly. Keep it for the next 30 years, and then you'll really be happy. (laughs) And what about Roth conversion? We should probably review the pros and cons of that at this point. Yeah, at the end of the year, you can decide whether or not you want to fill the rest of your tax bracket by taking some money out of pre-tax accounts, like the traditional TSP, traditional IRA, and converting it to a Roth. You pay the taxes by doing that, so you're filling your tax bracket. But again, it's that age-old question, what tax bracket are you projected to be in the future? If maybe this wasn't a year that you had tons of income, maybe it was a first year of retirement, you may consider filling up your bracket to whatever level until you hit that next percentage bracket. Take the taxes at a slightly lower rate if you think you're going to be paying more in the future because you're earning more, you have RMDs that will cause that, or the tax laws might change. And if you do any of these things we've been discussing, moving around funds, adding, subtracting, they all have tax implications. Does the online tax system that people are using have those rules and those requirements built into them such that you just fill in the numbers and your tax will be calculated accurately? Yes and no. You know, I think TurboTax and a lot of those systems have come a really long way, and they do a really nice job for what they offer. But I think that if you input the information incorrectly, if you use the wrong form for whatever reason, you could cause some challenges. We always ask people to double-check with an accountant, of course. They are the tax professionals. Because sometimes it's not just about getting the number right. It's the planning of whether you should even do it in the first place. So if they have financial planners, if they have accountants, those are good people to bounce these ideas off before you do something, and then you have to go back and undo it. And you could jump into Santa's lap at the mall. Do they still have malls with Santa's? I don't even know. And ask for a new tax code that's 10 pages long or 5 pages long. (laughs) That would really be a contribution to the advancement of humanity, but it's not going to happen. And finally, there's the question that comes up periodically, especially this time of year. Do you move your funds out of the TSP because you're annoyed at, you know, their cost ratios are rising, you know, for the TSP? I guess they're still pretty good relative to industry. And what's your thinking on just stay in the TSP or maybe try that fidelity type of thing? Yeah, I think if you're still working and you're contributing to the TSP, you belong in the TSP. You should be maximizing every last dollar that you can into those contributions. Once you retire, you can think about whether or not that vehicle is meeting your needs. How many times do you need to take distributions throughout the year? How frequently do you need those? The TSP has limitations in how the money comes out. And so you compare that with what are your other options. And when we talk to clients about meeting their needs, it's really determining what is your plan going to require for you to meet your objectives? And then what are the best tools available for you? Every one of these custodians and different options has pros and cons to them. You just have to find the one that works best for you. And maybe we should end this by saying, yes, the gift season is coming on, but it's basic. Don't run up your credit cards to give nice gifts. If you can't afford it with cash, then skip it. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Having to then take money out and pay taxes on it to pay off a credit card bill doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Tiago Glieger is a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Invest in the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. 
So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.